Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Welcome to The Money Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon, Peter. In the middle of reporting season, we oh, are. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the excitement time of reporting season. I was going to remind everybody this show is all about helping everyone who's listening make money, build wealth, build businesses, do anything better when it comes to that wonderful subject called money. Yeah, we should just explain what, of course, reporting season is, Peter, and there's Good lots point. of other ways to make money, but... Mm. Most of our companies have a June 30th or, or 31st of December balance date, and so they're required to report their half or four-year earnings twice a year, and that means because about 80% of companies reported as, you know, have these balance dates, they all sort of crunch together and we get these uh, very big earnings seasons when, we, when companies tell the ASX about how they're travelling, mm. the profit they've made, and what their outlook is for the next 12 months. And we get one in February and one in August. And we're sort of in week two of August. Uh, yeah, so this is a pretty big week. Lots of companies going Yeah, big names this week. Telstra on Thursday. Mm. A lot of people are looking forward to that to see whether we get any, well, I won't say bad news, but any news about not this year's dividend, but next year's dividend. Will they cut that? Yeah. Got West Farmers and uh, Woolworths. So West Farmers and Woodside on Wednesday, CSL a biggie on also on Wednesday, and, and Cochlear tomorrow. So lots happening, Peter. Yeah, and there's a lot of other well-known companies that aren't big companies, but they're well-known companies that are also going to be report. Probably by the end of this week, Paul, do you reckon we'll have a rough idea whether the, the corporate sector of Australia is getting better than expected or performing worse than expected? Yeah, expectations were pretty low um, for this uh, this season. In fact, I think the estimate overall was profits would grow around about 7% compared mm. to uh, uh, last year's, the corresponding half last year. And the reason that was pretty low, Peter, was because the resources companies are coming back a little bit. But uh, that, that 7% doesn't sound very good when you think that the US have just completed their earnings seasons and their quarterly profits are up, I think, 24 Four percent was it? Yeah, huge on on the on the quarter of uh, in t- same quarter of two thousand and seventeen. So going gangbusters in the US, and maybe we'll get some better news about Australia to tell us that companies are doing it a little better than uh, uh, than at least the numbers, the early numbers are suggesting. And, and I guess what we should also explain is that that countries, their economic cycles and their business cycles don't necessarily all occur at the one time. So America is ahead of us on both the economic cycle and the business cycle, and it's showing up in terms of profits. But we, what we want to see out of the Aussie corporate show-and-tell um, season is the fact that maybe they thought it would be a rise of 7% for collective profits. If it ends up being 10%, there'll be a thumbs-up, and share prices will keep sneaking up. That would they? be a thumbs-up, uh, and it's, ne- it's needed, I think, for our market to keep making momentum. But, of course, that's just one side of the whole wealth creation process, investing in the share market. There are lots of other ways to... Get rich or preserve your capital, whatever you're after, and hopefully we can uh, share some insights on that, Peter. Yeah, without a doubt. Now, on the, on the show today, we're going to be talking to Rob Mellor. Now, Rob is the managing director of a, of a very, very respected uh, 
building um, and property uh, research company. It used to be called BIS Shrapnel, but nowadays it's called BIS Oxford Economics. They they bought basically into into uh, Bish Shrapnel. Uh, and if any guy can give us a fair and honest assessment about what's happening to house prices, I think Rob Mellor is the one. Because there is so much um, negative negativity, I should say, yeah. Peter, about that the housing market. Just yep. pick up. Uh, you know, any one of the newspapers or turn it on the weekend news Saturday night and uh, watching Channel 9 News and the you know, big story every week is about the housing market and mm. what's going on. So, look, I, it, it certainly has slowed, Peter, but I think getting the actual real handle on what's happening and whether, you know, is it a, a you know, foreboding about something worse or yeah. is this just sort of a natural slowdown in the market? And maybe not all areas are slowing. Yeah, correct. I think that's, that's the point we have to make. I, I think I showed a, a chart in one of my stories last week, Paul, where Sydney's house prices since 2011 have gone up 80%. If we get up 80% over that period of time, we could easily pull back 10 or even 20%. And by the way, I know Rob Mellor's not thinking, thinking 20%, mm-hmm. but some of the newspapers are trying to, to imply this without there really being a, a substantial wealth effect. Because in many ways, the fact that it sparked up too high was ridiculous anyway, wasn't it? Well, it was. And it, of course, it doesn't actually impact most people because most people don't sell their home and most people aren't buying. So we talk about the wealth effect. It's nice that we all like property prices to go up, I guess, in some way, mm. because uh, it does help us. But look, most people don't cash in. And, and I mean, markets, particularly property, is a point in time thing. So I think uh, I think we just need to take a bit of a deep breath sometimes, think about this and, and uh, really understand where the value is. It's interesting, another story was about the growth in Hobart, Peter, which of course is from a lot of people from, you know, pre-retirees, or in some case retirees from Sydney and Melbourne moving to Hobart and saying, well, it's so cheap down here, I can, uh, I can get that view of, you know, of the bay and the yeah. water down there that you can get for half a million dollars, whereas in Sydney you'd be paying... Half a million for a garage. <laughs> half a million dollars for a garage and almost the same in Melbourne, so... Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right, Paul. What I find interesting is that people su- suggest that if people think that their house prices are going down, they feel less wealthy. But I noticed that uh, today uh, the average credit card balance had rose by $21.30 to a five-year high of $3,272.70 in June. Now, that's uh, up 4.6 over the year, and it's the strongest annual growth in eight years. Now, Consumers at the moment aren't feeling spooked if they're going out and spending more on credit cards. And that's got to be good for the economy. We may not uh, like the idea about people having more debt, but that's got to be good for the economy. And hopefully we'll, we'll start to – we're seeing that in the employment market. Yep. We just like to see it, I think, in things like company profits. We like to see a bit more confidence, I mean, yep. uh, uh, generally, because people – they say they're confident, but then you politically you keep hearing all this story about, you know, cost of living pressures and so forth and – Maybe we'll get some wage growth. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, let's hope so. And then we'll be talking to Marty Wilson. Now, Marty Wilson, I think he was a stand-up comedian at one stage of his life, but he's got a book called More Funny, More Money, How to Use Humor Strategically to Win Pitches and Drive Sales. So I'm, I'm very interested to see what his argument is. I, I know myself, when I'm doing a business speech, mm-hmm. I, I know you, you've ripped off a couple of my jokes. I have ripped off a couple my of your jokes, jokes Peter, because they work quite well. And uh, <laughs> look, the rest of what I've got to say is no, not always boring, but the jokes work. So look, I think humour is important. I, I think he's going to talk about how you use it in business to yeah. actually sell more, isn't it? Yeah, that exactly what right. Saying? Yeah, get, get I think people's attention to, to market what you're trying to do. And that's interesting because I, something I wouldn't have thought about, I, I know most of my sort of sales presentations are probably pretty serious. So yeah. 
I'm sure I can Great for sleeping, Paul. Fantastic. Great for sleeping, yep. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> okay. So that's the show. We'll, we'll go to an ad break now. We'll be back in a moment and we'll be talking to Rob Mellor from BIS Oxford Economics and we'll get to the bottom of whether we really should be afraid of a house price collapse. And uh, before we go to our next guest, I should point out that uh, I want people to remember we've got the Switzer Listed Investment Conference coming up. That's the 11th of September in Brisbane, the 12th of September in Melbourne, and the 13th of September in Sydney. This is a chance for you to hear some of the best fund managers in the country talking about their listed investment um, uh, companies that are, as I say, listed on the stock market. And I've got to say, last year, Paul, it had a great response from a lot of the attendees that they, they learned a lot about alternative ways of investing. Yeah, we got some fabulous feedback last year, Peter, because we had a great set of managers uh, who made a case and had a bit of debate. I, I remember that uh, your Q&A with each of the managers mm-hmm. on the stage, uh, you know, g- gave us sort of good good ups and downs about each of the different funds, the way they invest, what can be, what can work, what doesn't, and what they were thinking. So... I'm guess we've got we've we've got the same sort of pool this year. I know we've got Kerr Nielsen from Platinum uh, yeah. heading up the lineup, but some great managers, uh, and I'm sure you'll put them on the spot as to uh, what they do, how they invest, yeah. and why people should think about them. I think it's really important. Yeah, uh, I, I absolutely, Paul. And I think well, I actually thought a lot of people learnt from the uh, the, the conferences in, in the various cities was. Sometimes you just need to be diversified, and a good way of doing it is to go to an expert who specialises in certain areas like overseas investing, maybe technology investments, things like that. And I think a lot of people learn a lot from it. And just point out for our listeners, the reason we call it listed is that uh, we realise that you can buy pretty well anything now on the ASX, uh, and people actually prefer to, to see things that they can buy through and, and see trading. Yeah. And so if you want to invest offshore, want to invest locally, want to invest in shares, fixed income, whatever it is, uh, you can buy a listed product that does it. And uh, that's why the focus is on the, the plethora, I should say, of products out there and getting the best managers, put them on the spot, justify why their product works, it does, does a particular way, and um, we have some fun about doing it as well. Yeah, and so if you want to know about that, go to switzer.com.au and details about the, uh, the conferences will be there. We'll be back in a moment. So I'm talking to Rob Miller, who's the MD of BIS Oxford Economics. Rob, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, Rob, before we start, everyone remembers BIS Shrapnel, but BIS Oxford Economics, tell us what's happened. And I know Paul was asking me the question in the ad break, you know, is Oxford Economics, does it emanate out of Oxford University? Uh, well, yes, it does originally come out of Oxford, but I'll come, I'll come back to that. Yeah. So basically, uh, uh, nearly 18 months ago, at the end of February last year, uh, uh, Oxford Economics took a controlling interest in BIS Shrapnel and our name changed to BIS Oxford Economics. Mm. Oxford Economics, uh, yes, out of Oxford, but uh, it's a privately owned business um, uh, and uh, it operates effectively throughout the world uh, got offices in quite a number of different places uh, a main office in really these days in london but a significant there's still a significant number of people in in oxford but uh, equally a fairly large office in sydney these days with us and uh, and and probably uh, new york uh, 
the US business has grown dramatically. So they're most well known for the fact that they run a global economic model, a model that's been used by uh, reserve banks around the world, central banks around the world to look at sensitivity to various economic drivers and uh, uh, they have an economic model on, I think, somewhere in the region of at least 70, 80 countries, but they're doing forecasts on about 200 plus countries. And I think it's by city, they do forecasts at the city level to about 3,000 cities. So it's yeah. a very uh, comprehensive, more macro than BIS or uh, what was BIS shrapnel. So we're more known for our industry forecast, our macro forecast, but particularly our industry forecast across building construction, infrastructure, mining, and then the property uh, research that we do across residential, commercial, industrial, retail. So uh, uh, it's quite powerful uh, connection because yeah. uh, it means uh, they can help to sell our services in other parts of the world. I've just got back from Hong Kong and Shanghai um, where we, we've been doing for 20 plus years forecasts on the building construction industry and now we've got people on the ground who can help with that uh, selling and also we've got the inputs of... Uh, those economic forecasts which uh, fit in with a, a global model. Okay. So given all that, and, and I know you read newspapers like I do or, or yep. newspaper websites, and there's a lot of hype about how serious this house price fall in Sydney and Melbourne in particular because that's where the, the fast yep. growth has been. But try and give us you know, your, your view on how serious this might become. Look, I mean, it, need, it needs to be put in context of, of just how big the boom was, particularly uh, particularly in Sydney. I mean, median house prices in Sydney, I think, went up about 85% from the trough in 2012, and probably uh, you know, unit unit prices were up by around the 60% mark. So, you know, we're talking phenomenal growth mm. in that five-year period. Now... Uh, Melbourne wasn't quite as much as that. Uh, you know, Melbourne, Melbourne prices were probably up by in the region of, uh, you know, 60 odd percent. Um, prices, yes, have come back in the last 12 months, depending on which data series you look at. Obviously, there's a couple of different data series out there. One, it could be around 5% or just over 6% uh, price decline. And Melbourne, again, depending on which data series you could probably say was flat. Probably the latest data up to uh, July might start to be showing a, a 1% or so decline in, in, in Melbourne. Um, but, you know, when you've had a boom of that sort of magnitude and prices come back 6%, you know, if you thought it was going to fall another 10 or 15%, yeah, you'd be a bit concerned. But I think the likelihood of that is fairly remote. Uh, I think we've, you know, we've seen prices come off. Uh, investors have exited the market, both local and international investors. There's a significant reduction in demand from uh, in the major markets, uh, Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. And uh, but on offsetting that, there is a lot more first home buyers out there than there was up to say June last year. So you've seen a substantial increase in demand at the lower end of the market. You know, properties under say three quarters of a million dollars. Uh, where there's a lot more first home buyers out there in Sydney than there was a year ago, so that's that's some good news. Uh, but generally, owner occupiers who have, who are in the upgrading segment of the market or downsizing, generally demand in that segment of the market uh, has softened. 
uh, you know, it's probably off five, eight percent at least in terms of demand. Um, but is it about to collapse? Well, fundamentally, interest rates aren't going anywhere. Uh, so, you know, so, Rob, do you put out, uh, you got some forecasts there for, for Sydney and Melbourne in terms yeah, of looking at the yeah, next look, 12, 24 months? Look, out of, we'll review the numbers again in the next week or two when we get the latest data, but I suspect when we go into our forecasting uh, uh, conferences in a month's time, the numbers will quote uh, maybe another couple of percent decline in Sydney this financial year and then probably bottoming out uh, bottoming out and close to line ball maybe one percent growth the following year so to all intents and purposes the next you know if if, if you're a pessimist uh, then this looks like an optimistic view that in two years time prices won't be any different from what they are today and they will have come back you know six percent seven percent yeah, so, so from top, top to bottom, maybe another few percentage points in Sydney, yeah. but it's unlikely, given where interest rates are, that they're not likely to move up in the in in the next twelve months, and in fact, could be eighteen months before they move up. Uh, and I'm talking other than out of cycle rate rises because of uh, you know APRA changes and other things. Uh, there's not likely to be enough pressure on people to. To, to offload, you know, wanting to be offloading property, certainly amongst owner occupiers. Look, amongst the investors who might have bought off the plan and are contemplating walking away from their deposit, yeah, there'll be cases of that, okay? Because that's already happened, I suspect, in Brisbane. Hmm. Could it happen in Sydney and Melbourne? Yes. Um, so they might walk away from their 10% deposit because of a price decline. But are we talking across the board price declines of over 10%? No. Um, you, know, you know, potentially up to 10 in Sydney. Uh, Melbourne unlikely to be anything near as high as that uh, under a worst-case scenario. Mm. So how helpful is it that, A, the economy is looking okay? It's, it look, it's a 3% yep. grower, uh, and, and you and I would, would say, well, 3% is a pretty good number for Australia. And also, how important is population growth, and, and in particular immigration, to given stability to house prices in Australia? Look, it, it, it is very important. I mean, the, uh, the immigration numbers at the moment are, you know, probably running at, uh, well, we've only got data up to 16, 17. We haven't, we haven't got full data for uh, 17, 18 financial year, but 16, 17, it was up to 262,000 net overseas migration. I mean, these are phenomenal numbers. That's the second high, sorry, third Third highest level on record, you know, on record, uh, you know, the, the record was about 300,000 people coming in in 0809 and something in the region of about 277,000 the previous year. So these are very high numbers. Population growth is in the order of 1.6% on average. And I suspect over the next five years, it'll come back. But on average, it'll probably still be in the region of 220,000. And you know, probably turn the clock back five years, we would have said 180 to 200,000 net coming into the country. So we're talking, you know, you put another 30,000 people in there, that's an extra 10,000, 12,000 dwellings that need to be built. Um, that's a fairly significant number in terms of adding to demand and putting pressure in, in the marketplace. So, you know, we are going to see a fairly significant decline in new construction, particularly in high-rise apartments. And so as that comes through, um, you know, it's not like we're going to 
you know, if we have pockets of oversupply, the oversupply are not going to be certainly in Sydney around for long or in Melbourne. Mm. Um, the oversupply in the Brisbane inner city market for apartments is probably going to take another two or three years to absorb. Okay, so the economy, Rob, is that also something that you believe that this this 3% type growth is sustainable? I think the Reserve's got banks, thinks it's there for two years. Uh, Look, officially, we'd say probably a shade under. Like, say, for, you know, we we would say in 18, 19, the number's probably going to be more in the region of about 2.5% growth. Um, and maybe not that dissimilar in 1920, because if there is a softening in residential construction, uh, certainly that'll be showing up in maybe not too much this financial year, but into 1920. Uh, you've got pretty sluggish household consumption growth at the moment, so nothing flashed there. Um, obviously, there's a lot of infrastructure expenditure on roads and rail, Um but is it going to? We're already at fairly high levels, so is it going to grow from this level? Probably not much more. Mm. So basically, uh, you know, we're in a, into a period where we're effectively, uh, you know, economic growth is not accelerating. If anything, it's probably going to ease back a sh- fraction because I think the three percent figure on our latest numbers is sort of a little bit of an aberration. I think uh, it's more likely to return to the. Uh, you know, more the 2.5, 2.7, 2. 2.8 range. It seems to me, Rob, that there's no reason for us to get too excited either way. A, we shouldn't be excited because, you know, some terrible calamities come around the corner. But on the other hand, don't expect the, the, the economy to go gangbusters. No, that's it from an economic point of view. And then, of course, you know, if, if economic growth is only modest rather than uh, spectacular, then the risk of higher interest rates, you know, exacerbating any downturn in house prices is probably uh, put on hold. Mm. So, uh, you know, so from that point of view, we sort of can just muddle our way through and just get a, a you know, a correction. But probably more importantly, you know, three or four years where, you know, maybe another two or three at least on what we had last year if really prices um, going nowhere. In other words, it's not going to be the greatest investment around residential for the next few years, certainly in the case of Sydney. Melbourne might be a little bit better, but don't don't expect a quick return to 5 to 10% price growth per annum, certainly for Sydney in the next three years. Okay. Well, but one thing we, we like to do on this show is help people make money and buying stuff when it's not all that popular, can be a good a good idea. Now, just go to Brisbane, because you've talked about the yep. oversupply in Brisbane, and eventually you've implied over the next couple of years that supply will be bought up. Is there a buying opportunity for someone who's an investor who wants to buy some of those apartments and just sort of sit on them over the next five years? Look, if, I, if that was something I was interested in, and certainly if I was on the ground there and could get a, you know, a good look for myself, I think I'd be just watching that market and seeing whether there's any fire sale prices. If not, there might be more to come because it's not, you know, there's still a lot of supply to be added because this boom was so strong. It probably, from a construction viewpoint, it probably ended over 18 months ago, but that still means there's a lot of projects to be completed in the next 12 months. So I'd be just sitting back, keeping an eye on it, and yes, you might well find prices on offer that are, you know, over 20% 
or 25% below what they might have been asking off the plan because they were inflated. Let's face it, they yeah. were inflated. It, it sounds like, Peter, a buyer's market, I think they call that. So. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, also, right. also, Rob, right. the, the Queensland economy is actually showing a bit of life now, isn't it? It is. Queen, look, if, if you're taking a five-plus year uh, investment horizon, Queensland probably looks quite good yeah. uh, because it's, it's going to be it's been quite a while since, like even just forget about apartments, even just looking at houses, um, you know, the market really hasn't done anything significant. And by significant, I mean more than 5 or 6% growth per annum, you know, because that's about what it was running at between 2012 and 2016. And then it's sort of honey, probably lucky to have had 2% growth in the last two years. So, you know, it's, it's a market that's probably got some upside potential. It's, it's, you know, at the moment, it's only sitting at about, what, 7 or 8% more expensive than Adelaide, and you'd sort of think long-term it's got to have way better prospects than that than Adelaide. You'd expect the differential to be to be much greater. Obviously, on the other hand, Perth, likewise, yeah. uh, it's, uh, you know, it's gone from being 10% more expensive than Brisbane to being uh, cheaper than Brisbane at the moment because of uh, significant price declines of in the order of about 12% over the last four years. Well, Rob, I brought you on the program not to scare the pants off people, <laughs> and that's exactly what you've done. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> uh, well, Perth, Perth is getting towards the bottom of the trough. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's just about there, but I think the point of what I was making there is I suspect Brisbane... Brisbane will be one of the better performers in the ne- if you take a five-year horizon. Excellent, mate. Thanks for joining us on the program. Good to talk to you, Peter. Thanks, Rob. Thanks a lot. See you later. Well, Paul, I, you know, I got Rob on, as I said, to, to give us the, the true picture. And I half suspected he would give us a, 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 a probably less than exciting interview because he's not worried about the future. Now, I guess if he was a, a Harry Dent type, it would have been more exciting. But however, it would have been more scary. Yeah, but Peter, I think what he had to say, particularly about the size of further drops, was really important. Yeah. I mean, if you actually unbelievably to what small, he, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, all up less than ten percent, sort of top to bottom for Sydney, and and a bit less for Melbourne. Melbourne, yeah. And uh, we had an economist getting a little excited about Brisbane and, and Perth. I think he was. Uh, yeah, that, that's the bottom. Yeah, so it is interesting, isn't it? But the way we, we in the media operate is that if a story you know scares the pants off you, it's big news, and if it doesn't, it's like ah, that's boring. But I reckon, given the fact that people are trying to link a property price collapse to a stock market collapse to an economic collapse and rising unemployment, that is actually a very exciting interview. Well, what people forget is you've got to say, why is a property, you know, I think a lot of economists, not sorry, not economists, but people from overseas and newspapers, hmm. they get sort of all sort of tied up in this trying to compare what's relative value in Australia versus what's value in Europe or America or somewhere else. They lose sight of, 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 of what could cause the market to have a big downside. And there generally are only two triggers. Either interest rates go up. Yep, that's un- not going to happen. Or unemployment goes up because people can't, can't get a job or lose their job and can't pay their mortgages. And we've right? had record employment. We've got record employment mm. and we've got record low interest rates and both are looking pretty positive. Yeah, so, so, I, so to all those doomsday merchants, I've got one very simple message. Sod off. <laughs> Let's go to our break. And now. A word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. 
Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. And Paul, we should always throw in that that 3.89% is both the advertised rate and the comparison rate. For those people who don't know the comparison rate, please give us a definition. Yeah, the comparison rate, Peter, just tries to take into account some of the fees you might pay in a loan. So, for example, often a lot of loans have a standard monthly fee. Uh, you know, Sometimes that can be reasonably expensive, have mm. an annual fee. There's also other costs involved in getting a mortgage. So the comparison rate just tries to bring all those together so yeah, give you a really sort of a true cost of what what it is to borrow. And we should always ask, if you're going for a new loan, if it's a really great rate, you should say, well, okay, it's a great rate, but what is the comparison rate? Yeah, and I think that's probably a better guide, and particularly with loans where you get a, you know, effectively a much lower rate for the first couple of years. So there are quite mm. a few of those sort of, they used to be called honeymoon loans. I think that phrase has gone out of the lingo yeah. a little bit. Uh, are honeymoons that good that they're compar- comparable to a low interest rate? Well, I guess they are. I guess they are, Peter. So um, I can't remember. <laughs> oh, Paul, of course you go. I must tell Fiona that. All right, so uh, we're now going to be talking to a guy who's written a, a funny book, but it's a, a money book. It's called More Funny, More Money, How to Use Humor Strategically to Win Pitches and Drive Sales. And his name is Marty Wilson. Marty Wilson, thanks for joining us on the Switzer Money Show. Absolute pleasure, mate. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Okay, great. <laughs> really, really good to be here, Fantastic. mate. Good to be here. Marty, before you wrote this book, which we'll talk about in a moment, what was your background? Ah, oh, Well, I am a pharmacist who was dared into being a stand-up comic and went across to one a thing called Australian Comic of the Year and went across to the UK where I did full-time stand-up over there for eight years. Mm. And now now I'm back in Australia. I'm on the, uh, the international speaking circuit based here in Australia. I talk about resilience, particularly through times of change. But after this book, now I talk about being funny a lot, which sort of combines both parts of my split personality. I'm really enjoying it. Okay, so... I, I presume you've been watching uh, the Seinfeld with comedians getting coffee. Okay. Absolutely, Isn't absolutely. It, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, what I found find interesting, and I don't think I've actually given it the correct title, but the, what I find is you've got two comedians trying to analyse what comedy is all about, and they don't <laughs> they don't always see exactly the same way, do they, comedians? No, absolutely. It was it was one of those things. I mean, in, in in the preface to this book that I've just written, it's one of those old comedy cliches that, um, you know, dissecting comedy is like dissecting a frog. You find out a lot, but it kills it. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> the the series isn't anywhere near as funny as you might expect. And, and as and as as you quite rightly say that. Um, Comedians come at it from a very different angle. You know, people quite quite often ask me, what are comedians like? And it's just like asking, what are people like? Or, you know, like, what are economists like? Or, you know, there's um, all different spectrums. You know, there's there's some people who are, you know, just on all the time. You know, the people who are just, you love having at a party, like the Johnny Vegases, or I'm trying to think of other people in Australia who um, who are just on all the time. And there's other people who treat it like a craft and treat it like like Seinfeld does, you know, really, really break it down and and rework the language and rework it again. And, and yeah, so it's I find that really fascinating, yeah. the same as you, obviously. Yeah, exactly right. So, Marty, I'm joined here by my colleague, Paul Rickard. And, uh, Hi, Paul. Hi, Marty. And Paul was the uh, 
He's had a fair interest in money. He was the former uh, CEO and chairman of Comsec. Um, <laughs> Paul, did you, when you were pitching to grow Comsec, did you use comedy? Look, I, I didn't, Peter. Maybe that was to my extreme, uh, well, uh, regret. So <laughs> I, I'm interested, Marty, with your book, More Funny, More Money, How to Use Humour Strategically to Win Pitches and Drive Sales. So I guess we should sort of take it back and say, well, how do you do it? Hmm. And, and, and what are the benefits? Well, I, I guess um, one thing that I want to say from the outset is that I'm not talking about, you know, you going into uh, a pitch at Comsec and trying to be a stand-up comic, you know, yeah. like um, rattling off one-liners and uh, and treating it like it's a stand-up comedy gig. I mean, just that type of humour that shows your humanity instead mm-hmm. of, you know, because, you know, you go on eHarmony, RSVP and those sort of websites, you know, not like any of us so on hey, this hey, what, what, are, have, what are those obviously. websites? <laughs> eHarmony, RSVP. I, I'm completely out of the loop. What are these websites? <laughs> well, the, the old dating ads in the paper from uh, yours to my day, yeah, Peter. He, he knows all and, about those. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, what, what's, what's the one thing hmm. everybody says their prospective lifelong partner must have? Yeah, that's right. GSOH, yeah, good right. sense of humour. Yeah. And... And, uh, and, but then there's this, this idea that, you know, we go into work and so we all walk through those front doors at work, hold hands and jump off this humor cliff together and say, no, this is business. You're serious. I'm serious. This is business. We're all serious. And, and I, I think it partly comes from that our business structures have been inherited from the military a hundred years ago. But it, it actually, there's a lot of research that says, if you deliberately choose to lighten up and use a bit of levity, as I say, uh, not not necessarily, you know, being that, you know, no one wants that guy who comes into work, harvests material off YouTube or Netflix, and comes in and tries to pass it off as his own. And 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 I'm not using the uh, generic male, um, you know, pejorative uh, pronoun. It's always a guy. Like it's always a guy that does it. Mm. Um, and so don't be that guy. But. Um, there have been loads of studies for the last 20, 25 years, psychologists and researchers have been studying this about how just sprinkling a little bit of humour, a little bit of smile humour, a little bit, a few funny stories into a presentation is actually incredibly persuasive. So, you know, the, the catchphrases I use when I'm talking to people is when you're presenting to a group, do their eyes sparkle or gently glaze over? Mm. If you're giving a speech, are they nodding in agreement or just nodding off? <laughs> you know, big, um, Brian Tracy, the you know the great sales guy, said your ability to communicate with others will account for fully eighty five percent of your success in business and life. Mm. And and the studies back it up. You know, humor using humor has been seen to enhance your perceived leadership skills. So you know, p- particularly in times of stress in the workplace, you know, people who um, keep their sense of humor or keep that little Buddhist half smile on their face are seen to be in control and in charge of the situation, whether they really are or not. Mm. And there was a, there was another study where they asked um, people who are going to their doctor, physicians in the States it was, and uh, to rate their sense of humour, to rate whether they would say they have a good sense of humour or not. And doctors who are rated as having a good sense of humour, um, uh, the patients were 50% more likely to trust the diagnosis and 60% more likely to follow out their instructions um, to uh, to do the things to get better. So they're actually seen as being more credible and more competent. Yeah, I always remember there was a, I think a Rodney Dangerfield um, joke which said, you know, the guy went to the doctor and said, every doctor, every time I do this, 
it, it really hurts. And he said, stop doing this. <laughs> Kaboom. Don't do that. Don't, Don't do, that. do that. All right. So, look, I guess someone who reads your book, Marty, what kind of change do you imagine they – I guess their starting point is very important. But if you imagine someone – let's imagine you're a humorless accountant, that, that, if it's possible. <laughs> just imagine that it's possible. And you were going to do a major presentation of what was you know, arguably a really good business idea. Yep. How would you coach this accountant to ultimately benefit from reading the book? Well, I guess the, the probably the place to start is um, it takes time. You know, my first stand-up comedy gig was 21 years ago in June this year. Mm. You know, don't think to yourself that you can be that funny really quickly. You know, if people come along and see me, like when I'm when I'm presenting, I'm talking about resilience through change and disruption. So I'm um, talking companies in the middle of mergers and acquisitions and, and that sort of thing. So people are pretty stressed. So I need to get them laughing pretty quickly. But if you are this accountant and you are trying to get a good business idea across, the thing I get, place I get people to start is, I think everyone is a little bit funny in front of people they feel comfortable with. Mm. Everyone has two or three friends that they don't mind sharing a joke or sharing a funny story with. And so I, I get them to the point where, like, you know, try and imagine that you are trying to pitch this thing at that person, at your cousin or your best friend from school or whoever it is that you felt comfortable with. How would you pitch it to them? And and just break down that stiff and starchy exterior and expose a bit of the humour and the human humour inside. Is that does that make sense? It'd be a good place to start. Yeah, without a doubt. And look, I recently interviewed Simon Sinek, who um, has probably had one of the most uh, listened to TED talks of all time. And yes. what si- Simon said, I don't know if you come across his work. He basically said yeah, that, yeah. that numbers uh, they appeal to the neocortex part of the brain, but it's the limbic part of the brain where someone actually likes somebody. You know, and yes. and and do you would you argue then that the the more engaged you are with being humorous is more likely you'll be talking to the limbic part of the brain yeah absolutely absolutely i mean um uh like funny definitely increases your ability to persuade people uh, p- partly through um distracting your audience from jumping to their counter arguments you know if you can get somebody laughing at something then um it, it switches off that judgmental centers that simon talks about in, in the prefrontal cortex and the frontal part of their mm. brain where we analyze everything people are saying to you and try you know if if we're trying to shoot somebody down you know and, and i'm sure you know you've done presentations peter where you know there's a few hecklers shall we call them in the room mm. who who are desperate to trip you up mm. if you can get somebody laughing you can actually distract them from their counter arguments there's a, a lovely quote from john cleese who says if i can get you to laugh with me you like me better which makes you more open to my ideas and if i can persuade you to laugh at the particular point i make by laughing at it, you acknowledge its truth. Mm. And so, it, and, and the, the great thing about trying a little bit of humor in a presentation is that psychologists have, have worked out that um, because, you know, human beings are very social animals and we are used to responding to our environment and wanting to fit in with what we think the crowd thinks. So if you can tell a joke, they've worked out that even if only 25% of the room laughs out loud, it actually increases the likability and um, perceived trustability. Mm. That's, not, that's not the right word, credibility. Yeah, we're around with um, it. 
<laughs> yeah, of, of the speaker because um, you know our brains respond to um, the the verbal cues that we're getting from all around us. Like, and, and we start to relax, and our the, our tension and our cynicism goes down if we can just get uh, people, uh, even twenty five percent of the room, laughing. Yeah. And Marty, are there any sort of techniques? Let's go back to the sort of the humorless accountant example. Uh, obviously, one <laughs> yeah, thing I should if be doing. It's possible to have one. One thing I should be doing is reading your book. But are there any sort of other couple of you know two or three really important ro- uh, rules for the for the humorless accountant? Uh, a lot of people find it really hard to be funny. So what do they? Uh, yeah, yeah. What, what would the, you do if you're in that situation? Absolute fair question. And uh, the best place to start is if you want to be really funny. Don't tell jokes because if, if you try and tell a joke, when you're telling a joke, you know you're telling a joke, so you're invested in whether it's funny or not, and the audience knows you're trying to tell a joke, and so they feel pressure whether to laugh at it or not. But the thing I say, the place to start is find two or three stories. Just say you've got a 20-minute presentation mm-hmm. to people. Find two or three stories that you already tell socially that you know are pretty funny and usually always get a laugh. And, mm. and if you don't, you, you can't think of any off the top of your head. I say, ask your husband, ask your wife, ask your partner, ask your family. What are those two or three stories that Peter tells or Paul tells every time we're at a barbecue and that you know the everyone's had a couple of beers and the social situation's going well, the laughter is flowing. Oh, geez, he's pulling out the Star Wars story again. Here we go. Mm. And so, find two or three stories that you already tell socially and weave those in there's techniques in the book for how to weave those into your presentation so Mm. one at the start one at the end and one about two-thirds of the way through Mm. find find ways to weave because if you're telling one of those stories that you've told 30 40 50 times before you know you're on your feet in front of an audience and you know you're a bit nervous like as we all get up in front of a crowd. When you start telling a story that you've told many times before, you know, your shoulders widen, you look relaxed, you start to smile because you know there's probably a laugh coming. Um, but the key to it is don't start your story with, I've got a funny story for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be- because, again, that puts pressure on the crowd. And then, like just like I said at the start, if, you're, if you try and tell a joke, um, th- there's pressure in the room. And the key to humour is not is there not being pressure in the room on you or on them. So if you just start telling a story and, you know, on a social occasion it normally gets an eight and a half out of ten laugh, but in this presentation it only gets a four and a half, if you haven't told them I've got a funny story for you, then you can just have a little smile um, with them at their smile or, you know, half laugh back at you mm. and move on if you haven't set it up. Marty, the book itself, is it available in all good and bad bookstores? Yes, all, all good bookstores and quite a few bad ones as well. Thank you, thank you for pulling pulling out that one. I love that. Joke. Yeah, I, I always feel sorry for the bad bookstores. <laughs> of course, the bad bookstores haven't survived in this very competitive world. Marty, I wish you a lot of luck with the book, and uh, thanks for joining us on the program. No, thanks for having me. I, I really do listen to it all the time, so it's lovely to be on. Thank you. Thanks, Marty. That's Marty Wilson, and he's the author of the book More Funny, More Money, How to Use Humor Strategically to Win Pitches and Drive Sales. We'll be back in a moment looking at your questions and getting the answers. Okay, so it's time for that uh, part of the program where we answer people's questions. They email them in. Uh, and we email all our questions to info at switzer.com.au. So if you've got any questions for the radio podcast show, 
make sure you use info at switzer.com.au. And this one comes from Patrick from Pimble. And he says, can you explain what happens to my super when I die? Can I nominate who gets it? And do they pay tax on it? I'm a little confused because it goes to my wife. Uh, if, if it goes to my wife, I understand that she doesn't pay any tax. But if it goes to my daughter, she does pay tax. Look, that's a really great question. So first yeah. of all, Patrick, yes, uh, you can decide who your super goes to. Uh, it's done for most people outside the will, and you do what's com- what's called a binding death benefit nomination, and uh, with the super fund, Paul, with the it? super fund, and that, in other words, you're providing instruction to the trans to the trustee of that fund upon your death to pay your super monies to your wife or your child or whoever it is. So, yes, you can decide exactly who your super goes to, and it's not part of your estate if, if you do a binding death benefit nomination. Mm. Now, in terms of tax, it's a uh, uh, it is a little rather strange because, again, whether someone pays tax depends on who the person is. Mm. And the tax office, or at least the law, says that if you're a, a financial, someone who's financially dependent on the person, there's no tax to pay. Mm. And if you're not, they do pay tax. So generally your partner, for example, if your wife or your partner gets your super, they don't pay any tax. Mm. Also, even if she's a high court judge. Even if she's a high court judge. Uh, also, if he goes to a, a child who's dependent on you, yeah. under, under 18, they yeah. don't pay any tax. Yeah. But as it often happens, if it goes to an adult child, so that's now a child who's become an adult, so yeah. they're over 18, mm. uh, they will pay tax uh, on part of your any death benefit payment. What kind of taxes are poor, generally? Well, it's only a low rate of tax, mm. so let me just explain. So there's some part, part of your super tax benefit is actually always tax-free, and that's mm. what we call, you might see if you pick up a super statement, you'll see things like the tax-free component. There's actually no tax that's ever paid on that. Mm. You'll only, they'll mm. only pay tax on what's called the taxable component, lovely sort of tax yeah. office yeah, lingo it's, here. It's a tax term. And then they'll pay tax of up to about 17%, 17.5%. So, look, it's not a huge amount of tax, but... Uh, you know, goes to your adult child, though, that they'll pay tax. Goes mm. to your wife or your husband, they won't pay tax. And yes, you can decide who gets it. Okay. Let's go to Raymond from Q. Uh, if I invest offshore into shares that trade on Wall Street, what do I do from a taxation point of view? Do I pay tax in the US of E? Again, another good question. Yeah, well, great question. from the Australian tax officer's point of view, doesn't matter where you earn the income, it's taxable, right? So yeah. you don't... They're all encompassing, aren't they're they? They're all encompassing. So you don't uh, escape or avoid paying any tax here in Australia. However, we have what's known as a double taxation agreement with the US, such that the Australian tax office recognises tax that you pay in the US, and so you don't end up paying double tax. Mm. Now, well, the, from the US point of view, they actually will generally put a withholding tax on any dividend payment, and so some of that dividend you'll get will be taxed in the US. But when you actually then finally declare the income back in Australia, that the Australian tax office will recognise that the tax you've paid in the US. So, so you might pay a little bit more because our tax rate's higher, but they'll recognise the fact that you've paid a portion of it in the USA. Yeah, so you, effectively you'll pay the same whether you earned the money in Australia or the United States, mm. but some will actually go to the US government in a withholding tax and the Australian tax office won't charge you as much. Now, it gets a little bit complicated because if you start to invest in shares, you're going to have to fill out this horrible form called a W8BEN. W8BEN. You're wearing me. It's it's one of the most horrific 
forms you're ever going to fill out, and, and one of the most hardest things to understand, that's a form that goes to the U.S. Department of Inland Revenue, right. and uh, you're required to fill that out. And that basically, if you do that, you'll end up actually not having to pay double tax. So mm. it's an important thing to complete. But uh, look, apart from that, it's it's not that tricky, and uh, no. and you'll. But be let's okay. just get this clear. If I went to NAB Trade or Comsec and bought myself some Apple shares, mm-hmm. am I going to have to fill this form in, Paul? You are, because Apple pays a dividend, Peter. Um, And if they don't pay a dividend, you won't. But Mm. generally, the dividends are fairly low. And, of course, any capital gain you make is going to be taxable back here in Australia. So, Mm. look, it's a bit tricky, but not... There's not a good enough reason not to do it, if that makes sense. Okay. So it's one of those things you've got to get through. And both NABTRADE or Comsec or whoever the broker is that's try- helping you invest offshore, or if you invest in a, things like an exchange-traded fund in the Australian share market that invests in the US, they'll help you with the W8, Ben. Get it in place once and you'll be okay. It's called the W8. B-E-N. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. and I can't. I think W is the form number, and B E N stands for beneficiary, but yeah. it goes by that. Okay, right. Yeah. Good explanation. Now, finally, this comes from Atta. Uh, it came in via email. We're not sure where Atta resides. Charlie Aitken wrote about Chinese shares, uh, one called Ten Cent, and others. What is his opinion now? Can he provide his recent ratings? Well, I know Charlie thinks that those companies, the Asian fangs, mm. particularly Tencent and Alibaba, are good value compared to some of the US yep. fangs. In fact, Charlie was on our show, on your show the other day, Peter, yep. uh, saying exactly that from memory. It was. Uh, Tencent and some of the other Chinese stocks have been sold off because we've seen in the last couple of months... They've been trumped. They've been trumped. They've trump. been trumped. We've, we've seen quite a... Uh, a big shift into the US dollar, and so there's a flight of capital out of some of the emerging markets. And, and I think Tencent's one of the biggest yeah. shares in most emerging market indices. So, you know, if people are moving, if the big fund managers are putting money back into the US, it means that there's pressure on some of the Chinese stocks. But he thinks they're pretty good value at these yeah. levels. So you might have to wear some pain in the short term. I think that's Charlie's view. But as mm. a long term, he's still a huge fan of companies like Tencent and Alibaba. Yeah, and he makes the point that um, China and the rest of Asia, uh, fast growth, economic growth c- countries, population growth still there. Uh, more and more people are moving from, say, battling class to middle class. And so the opportunity over the next 10 years is primarily going to be in Asia rather than Europe or the USA. But he, and, and the, I think, I think 10 cents is down, 10 cent is down about 20 cent percent. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. So he said, look, it could go lower because the Trump trade war thing could spook them even more. But you probably are in a buying opportunity zone, Paul. And the point he makes is that companies like 10 cent aren't actually affected by President T. It's not as though Tencent is going to have a tariff on it. You know, no. Tencent is actually all used by people in China. But yeah. it's a function of the, the markets and the dollar. Yeah. And uh, because it's one of the biggest companies, if people don't like for some reason put want to get money into the US dollar mm. and they're selling emerging markets like China, everything goes down. And we should put this final point in, that when it comes to fast growth stocks, ones that have grown really mad, like um, Netflix and Facebook and all that sort of stuff, when a curveball comes along, in Facebook, of course, it was the problem around the, the hacking and the mm-hmm. security of, d- of data, it comes off the boil. And in the case of Tencent, it's rocketed. But now this whole trade war thing uh, um, is worrying people. So they take their profit, the share price falls. But if the company's opportunities and future haven't changed much, they can be in the buying zone. 
Yeah, it's what's called a buying opportunity, but like any buying opportunity, they don't always work straight away. No, so right. you've got to be patient, and maybe you don't use all your capital at once mm. because you, you know, when you get these type of things, you don't know how much. It's very hard to, to actually define how far these and how long they last. Exactly. Well, that's the show for today, Paul. Thanks for joining us as always. And uh, we look forward to talking to you next week. Triple time! <laughs>